What's going on, all you good people out there? I hope everybody had a fantastic week. Welcome to Unrestricted. I'm your host, Ben Lieber. My guest this week is by far the smartest person I've ever sat down and talked to. And obviously, full disclosure and qualifier, no offense to anybody else I've sat down and talked to, but nobody can compare to Dr. Frederick Harris and what he has done in his life so far. So Dr. Harris, I wanted to bring him on because I I wanted to talk concussions. I wanted to talk CTE. You know, we are going into the football season and and I know that concussions are always a thing on players' minds. It's a thing on parents' minds. And um, I just wanted to get a feel for him about where we were, where we're going, uh, what's in the future, what should we be thinking about as far as athletes and parents of athletes, how do we approach concussions, how do we look at CTE even post-career, all of that stuff um, I think is um, you know very fascinating. And I think that we should all be up to date on the latest and greatest in that research. So Dr. Harris is a board certified neurosurgeon, 18 years of practice. And and not only that, that he spent time previously to medical school as a NASA mechanical engineer. And also he spent some time with the, with the Department of Defense working on ballistic missiles to take other missile threats out of the air. I, I can't make this up. Honestly, this guy went from mechanical engineer to board certified neurosurgeon and is changing people's lives on a daily basis. He got his undergraduate degree from Southern University in A&M with a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering. That's where he was going to school to for, to further that career path. He went on to University of Texas Southwest Medical Center at Dallas, Master of Science in Bioengineering. And then he decided to change courses after the Department of Defense and went to Ohio State University for uh, the School of Medicine, got his medical degree, did his residency at, at Tennessee Memphis Health Science Center and the Department of Neurological Surgery in Memphis, Tennessee. Then he got his board certification from the American Board of Neurological Surgery. So, Listen, I, you can't find a more qualified person to talk about these subjects than Dr. Frederick Harris. So I appreciate Dr. Frederick Harris for his time today, for educating all of us right here on Unrestricted. And I hope you guys enjoy. This podcast is brought to you by the one, the only Douglas and Todd Bourbon. You can find Douglas and Todd at douglasandtodd.com. It is grain to glass, Minnesota made gold medal winning bourbon. Who says you can't have good bourbon outside of Kentucky? Well, we do at Douglas and Todd. The reason being the extreme hot and cold temperatures of Minnesota as it matures in those charred American oak barrels for over five years lends itself to the expansion and contraction of the temperatures. And by doing that, it goes inside the wood and gets pressed out of the wood and just brings out that bold, rich, yummy flavor 
of bourbon that you love so much, and you be the judge for yourself. Go to douglasandtodd.com. Go to the store locator in the upper right-hand corner. Find the liquor store closest to you so you can judge for yourself. Douglas and Todd Bourbon, Minnesota-made, grain-to-glass, gold-medal-winning bourbon, douglasandtodd.com. Well, Dr. Harris, how are you, man? It's good to meet you. I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, um, it's it's funny. So for the for the audience out there, um, you're in your scrubs. You came right you came right from work. Yeah, that's when what you, I do. When you said, "Hey, let's meet in person," I said that this would be great if we could meet in person. And uh, so I appreciate you coming right from the uh, operating room mm-hmm. um, into this podcast studio. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you are, and I get a kick out of this because. You know, on your official Twin Cities Orthopedics site, it says you are a board-certified neurosurgeon. That's correct. Okay. If if you're a neurosurgeon at Twin Cities Orthopedic, I'm assuming you're board-certified. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I think it's a – I know it's nice that you, you have the board certification, but, like, I'm hoping they wouldn't hire anybody that's not. Yeah, but you'd be surprised how many patients ask. Really? How many patients ask, are you board certified? So we just, I just decided to put it on the website so when people read it, they know. I suppose, isn't there a validation that you're working for a highly credited, you know, orthopedics company that you are certified to be there? Yeah. Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah. But they need to see, they need to see and hear the certification. Some people, you wouldn't believe how much we're asked that question. That is fascinating to me. Because everybody's not board certified, but. But, you, I mean, just around, just doctors around the country, not everybody is board certified. Oh, really? So maybe I'm, mis- maybe I'm misunderstanding then. So you can be a doctor and not be board certified? Board certified, yes, in your specialty. Um, you, you don't, not everyone is board certified in their specialty. Most are, but there are people that are not. Right, right. Well, you're, you're a super fascinating um, person in that, not only do you do something that is remarkable, I mean, you're operating on people's spines, um, nerves, brains, I mean, very, very delicate stuff, but you did not start there. I um, did not. You, you actually worked at NASA and were an engineer before you became a neuroscientist. That's correct. That's correct. How, how in the heck, <laughs> how in the heck have you lived these two lives as a young person still, um, and got to do some pretty cool, remarkable things. Like, I, I just want to go back. Look, a little bit of background on me because we are sort of meeting for the first time. I wanted to be an astronaut. Okay. I wanted to be a fighter pilot. I, I was fascinated by planes and, and missiles and the military and NASA. And that was sort of the world that I aspired to be. Right. And I found out my freshman year of college, I ain't that smart. <laughs> I, I could not get through the prereqs of mechanical engineering, which were, which was going to put me on a, on a, on a path to aeronautical engineering. Yeah, I didn't have it. Right. I, I get it. I get it. So what was the fascination with you? Would you, were you always as a, as a child sort of like I was you know, into that sort of thing? Were you like a guy that tinkered around with different deals, taking things apart, seeing how things work? Yeah, when I was when I was a kid growing up in Alabama, we uh, I just had an interest in the human body. 
and just how things worked. And I, I would watch all these shows on television about being surgeons and watching people operate. And that was just a dream of mine. And so, you know, my parents were not in medicine. I didn't know anyone in medicine. So I went to my high school counselor and I told her, I said, I want to be a surgeon. She sat me down politely and said, son, you need to get real and get a realistic goal. Your parents aren't surgeons. Your parents aren't in medicine. You're good in science and math. Do something else. So that kind of geared me into thinking maybe I should just go into math, which was one of my favorite subjects at the time. So I decided to uh, go to college. I went to Southern University, and I, I did major in mechanical engineering. And I graduated, and when I, after I graduated, I worked at NASA in the Department of Defense. And I still had that burning desire inside to try to become a surgeon. And so one day I woke up, I was married, and I uh, didn't have any children at the time. I told my wife, I said, hey, I got to try this. And she said, let's do it. And so I submitted a resignation to the federal government. I, um, I then went to grad school in biomedical engineering and then ended up getting into med school at Ohio State. That is wild. So what was your duties and your jobs at the DOD and NASA? So um, I worked on, at, at the Department of Defense, I worked on missile defense systems. So I worked mainly on um, some of the different rockets. There were like uh, the Patriot missile. They had other missiles that were being designed to um, intercept incoming bombs and, and missiles. That was the main thing I worked on at the Department of Defense. At NASA, I worked on uh, the space shuttle payload frame, which is where astronauts keep all their instrumentation. And I was in a lab where we had to perfectly balance that using that, that payload frame, using finite element analysis to make sure that that was totally balanced when it was in outer space because there was a lot of vibrating and shaking going on in, in, the, in the outer space when they're flying and, and you don't want the thing to fall apart. So you had to completely balance it. So you are doing two different things. Like, how did you, how did you juggle those two responsibilities and, and well, they tasks? Were, they were at different times. They were at different I, times. Yeah, okay. I worked at NASA first, and then I went to the Department of Defense. Okay. So definitely. in total, how many years did you do those two jobs? I worked at NASA throughout college, and then after that, it was three years, and then two years with the Department of Defense. And I would imagine that is... A pretty typical—is that a nine-to-five type thing? Are you just in a lab, you know, all day long? Like- yes, yeah, it's, it's nine-to-five. A lot of meetings with contractors and, and doing uh, research, and you know, just um, designing different projects and coming up with ideas. And so it was a—it was—it was a, was, was nine-to-five job. It was one that you didn't—no uh, weekends, no holidays, just nine-to-five. Hmm. And it, and I take it it just didn't sort of scratch that itch that you that you've had i mean i know it to me it sounds like that sounds like a pretty badass job you know it sounds like super something like you'd be super proud of and fun and like oh my gosh i get to work at nasa i get to work with the department of defense but you know what i guess it just didn't have that feel to you at that point in time my heart was in medicine the whole time yeah and you know i I regretted not doing it from undergrad, like when I initially went to college, but I'm glad I did get an engineering degree because I do believe that helped quite a bit in med school and what I do today. So, um, you know, it, it took it took a longer time to do it, but I think for me it was the best route to allow me to be mature and be ready for 
the demands of what I do. Yeah. And what sort of, you, you sort of mentioned this carryover. What carryover is there when it comes to, you know, applied mathematics and, and mechanical engineering and, you know, circuitry and physics and all that stuff into the way the human body works and the way we're kind of geared and set up? Yeah, it's, it's the, thing I'm, the thing I really liked about the nervous system is it's, it's almost like an electrical system. And there's different pathways for everything that happens in your body that go from the top of your skull all the way to your toe. And there's a pathway that each um, neuron takes. And, the, and that kind of resembled electrical engineering that I studied also in undergrad. But um, the mechanical engineering, I think um, I use that the most when I'm doing spine surgery because spine is a lot of reconstruction understanding the biomechanics of the spine and how the spine works and all the different moving parts and trying to solve problems and attach spines, you know, spine together um, in ways that decrease pressure on nerves and just, just um, you know, solve problems for people. Yeah. So would you say that you, is that the number one sort of ailment that people come come and see you for is spinal cord injuries and compressions and herniations. Yeah, it is. Uh, I see uh, right now in my career, I probably see 90% spine, complex spine issues. Now, throughout my career, through tra- training and different jobs I've had, I did a lot of uh, tra- traumatic injuries, a lot of brain tumors, brain aneurysms. So I, I've seen the whole gamut. And I trained in University of Tennessee in Memphis where, you know, Memphis was a very violent city. Mm-hmm. So I've probably taken everything you can think of out of a brain. You know, oh, bullet, knife, you name it. I've, I've seen it all. Oh, that's so fascinating to me. You know, and you went from, and I know that because you, you had it in you to always want to study this stuff. But when you first started diving into it when you got to med school, was it st- – was any part of it kind of gross? You know, did you have to get over the fact that you're tinkering with somebody's spine and their brain and touching things and moving things around and taking things out? I did not. I mean, to be honest with you, the the best part of med school was the first year for me when we walked in the first couple of days of, of, of classes and went to gross human anatomy lab. We walked in the lab. There were cadavers. There were five of us per cadaver. And there were just, um, you know, just the human, the beautiful human body laying there for us to learn from. And that, that was the best part of med school for me. Really? Yeah, it really was. And that's what drew me to neurosurgery the first day. We started um, med school with the nervous system. And one thing I noticed was nobody else liked it. Nobody wanted really? to do it. Yeah. It, 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 it's a different, it's, it's not like every other organ in the body. It's a, it's a different organ. It's a different way of thinking. And to be honest, it was so much of a learning curve, and there are so many things that are not known about the brain that it just drew my interest and made me want to do it. So when I went into med school, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and, and do sports, you know, knees and work with, you know, athletes, and that kind of thing. But the minute I walked in that cadaver lab and saw that beautiful brain, it was over. So what about it? Because we have all at this point in time have seen a have seen a brain, you know, some sort of brain on um, throughout our lives. It. What about that was like, yeah, this is it. Like it, it just seems like a bunch of folded tissue that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that seems kind of squishy and and um, 
seems like something kind of otherworldly. You know, it's like, it doesn't seem like it really should be there. So when you when you actually see it and you're reading about it and then you're dissecting it, you're slicing it, you're looking at slices and the, the different um, pathways and tracks of the brain, the parts of the brain, and you're actually learning that this is the center of your soul, this is who you are, it's attractive. Yeah. It, 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 it really got me thinking that's what I wanted to do. And that was from the first couple of weeks of med school. Yeah. Did you feel like you're, I, I would take it you were probably one of the older, older incoming newbies to med school. Yeah, I was, I was probably a little bit um, right center of the uh, bell-shaped curve. There were some people in their 40s and 50s. I think I was, I think I was 30 when I started. The majority of people were in their early 20s. Yeah, I got to think that that probably helped you, right? Yeah, that's what I was saying before. I'm glad I did it this way because um, it allowed me to be mature coming into med school and be focused and to know exactly what needed to be done and do it. Yeah. You know, I, I often think about that now with even even my kids. Um, you know, my oldest is 13 and already starting to think about what is she going to do, going, you know, where is she going to go to college and, you know, kind of thinking those, those big picture things. And thinking about my own life, I'm like, God, I wouldn't be opposed to her just taking a year off, yeah. you know, and, and being, an, being an incoming freshman that's maybe 19 or 20 instead of, you know, yep. going, you know, turning eighteen and going off, and then ha- expected to be a young adult yep. and balance life. Yeah, I know a lot of kids are doing that nowadays. Yeah, during my generation, that was unheard of. You know, you just you if you 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 graduated from high school and you went right to college. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the fear is maybe they don't ever go to college. That's right. Yeah, that's what happened in my day. The people that did that, a lot of them did not end up going to college. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to have some sort of written agreement with her. <laughs> that's a, a right. Personal contract so you can take a year off, you can travel or whatever, do whatever, but you have to go to college the next year. That's right. Yep. Uh, well, the reason I I wanted to reach out to you, um, and I got to give special thanks to uh, to Dr. Chris Larson, who's the orthopedic surgeon for the Vikings, and uh, a friend of ours and a friend of mine. You know, I, I reached out to him and said, hey, I really want to talk about concussions and I really want to talk about traumatic brain injuries. And I think it's um, of interest to the audience. And especially now as we kind of ramp up into the football season, that it's becoming such a hot topic and not not just becoming, but it's been a hot topic for years. And I do think that there's a lot of misinformation out there. I think that, um, you know, the, the parents of high school players mm-hmm. that are contemplating you know, do I send my kid out to play football or, or maybe they, they play football now? The point is concussions are part of the equation now when we think about any sport, whether it's soccer or hockey right. um, or football. And I just wanted to have sort of sort of this this educational uh, approach and podcast about concussions. And, mm-hmm. and you were top of mind for him. And, and I want to kind of just jump into what is a concussion? You know, what have we learned from the time that you were in med school and you're learning about concussions, even to when I was a player? I mean, right. we used to think that you couldn't rebuild your circuitry of your brain. You know, it, it seemed like the damage that's done with a said concussion or a TBI back in the day, it was like, well, that's it is what it is. Right. You know, our brains are not don't have the ability to produce new neurons and and um, and figure out different pathways. And and now we're kind of light years ahead. So let's kind of go back to the beginning. In a sense, in your best words, you know, concussion 101. What mm-hmm. is a concussion? So um, the way I define a concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury some, from some sort of biomechanical force 
either to the head, the face, the body, or the neck that causes some transient changes and dysfunctions in the nervous system. Now, these um, usually come from either blunt um, injuries to the head or an acceleration, deceleration type injury. And most people recur, recover over, the, over a few days to a week or two after a concussion on average. But um, that's how I define it. And, and just to reiterate, it can be from a direct blow to the head. That's right. Or it can be from even a hit to the body in yes. which you're decelerating at a higher rate and there's a, there's a whiplash effect. That's right. It is. It's, um, we call it a cool contra cool injury where you're accelerating at a certain speed. There's an abrupt stop, but your brain is floating in spinal fluid. So you've got a brain inside a fixed skull that doesn't expand with, you can think of water, spinal fluid or water inside the skull with the brain floating. So when you make the abrupt stop, your head hits the skull and then bounces back and hits the back part of the skull. And that can, that's one of the major ways that um, people are injured. So in that, in that sort of scenario that you're talking about, it's not so much the frontal lobe of the brain hitting the front part it's almost more of the, the impact on the back of the brain that can cause a lot more damage than just. You know, it can, it can be either way. Either I way. mean, I see a lot of, I've seen a lot of people in my career in severe, like accident, you know, car accidents and, uh, or whatever, where they were, where they had more damage in the frontal region than, mm-hmm. the, than the posterior region of the brain. So it can happen either way, but, um, you know, I just think it's the combination of jarring your brain and it basically bouncing around in your skull. Neurons don't tolerate that very well. Yeah. And it's even worse with rotational injury because then you can shear nerves, you can tear nerves, and and that can cause s- severe damage. So we're talking the brain actually twisting, let's say, I'm picturing sort of a boxer getting hit right on the button, right, right. on the side of the chin, yeah. and their head sort of snapping and turning. That's That sometimes is worse than us. Yes. That can be worse than just the um, direct going forward um, acceleration, deceleration. In some ways, that is the, you know, can be a more serious injury. So then what exactly happens then? Well, you know what? Let me take that back because I did want to ask you this. I, I've often heard that the brain is, for lack of a better term, sort of this consistency of jello. Yes. Now, that seems very flimsy to me. Is that a correct depiction of it, or is it more sturdy than that? It's it's somewhat similar to Jello. I mean, it's a it may be a little more um, firm than Jello, but it's very it's 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 consistent with it. It's, so it's very malleable. Yes. Like, so a living a living brain is very it is very squishy. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. It does have a firm content to it, but it, but it is um, uh, it's it's. It, it is, in that sense, somewhat similar to Jello, but but I do think it's a little bit more firm than Jello. Yeah, and then you're talking about this this sack of spinal fluid that it that's it's sort of wrapped up in and kind of floating in. We're talking about how much how much distance between the outer edge of the brain to the skull, like how much spinal fluid is actually suspended in there. 
So it's, it's usually around 150 cc's, and your body makes about 500 a day, 500 cc's a day. So it's constantly recirculating, recirculating and building, rebuilding itself. But between the skull and the brain depends on the age. In a, in a small child or a young person, there's millimeter, which is a very little small distance. In an elderly person, as you age, your brain shrinks, and it's called atrophy. Your brain starts to shrink. Then there's more room. So that is a lot of times how people get injured when you see a lot of elderly people fall. It could be the the mildest fall, same level fall. They're walking, they fall, and they have a terrible brain hemorrhage. It's because the distance from the inner portion of their skull to the outer portion of their brain is is greater than when they were younger, and they're bridging veins that spread, that stretch from the skull to the brain. And they can tear, and then you start to have blood inside. So how do we, is that just a natural part of aging, or or can we do something to stop the the brain shrinkage and the atrophy? I mean, it's, I mean, there, you can try to live a healthy life, eat right, and, and, not abuse things like alcohol and that kind of thing, but it's a natural part of aging where you are going to develop atrophy over the years huh. as you get older. So let's go back to the, like a, the point of impact. Mm-hmm. Point of impact, whether it's a a, a shearing effect uh, by the side of the head or direct you know frontal impact and, and a whiplash effect. What then, as we dive into the brain, what actually happens to the neurons? to give you the diagnosis of a concussion? So what, what typically happens is you get the point of impact, and then the neuron has a protective membrane that keeps potassium on the inside, calcium on the outside, and your blood pressure is, is auto-regulated by your nervous system. So when, you, when a person hits their head, that membrane is disrupted, so then potassium can exit, calcium can enter, and then you can start to see the effects of a concussion. So that's so you're ta- is it is it the myelin sheath? Is that is that what we're talking about here like the little protective outer coating? It's it's smaller than yeah, it's it's, it's smaller. It's the uh it's the covering around the neurons. So myelin sheath is usually around bigger nerve, larger that is nerves, larger nerves. Yeah, but um it also, you know, there's a sheath around the the tiny microscopic neurons in your brain. So we're talking basically just a, a chemical transfer almost. That's basically, I mean, there's a cascade of events that happen after that. And once that happens, you can start to get, um, once the auto-regulation in your brain is not managed appropriately, then you start to have fluid buildup in places where you shouldn't. And you can get what's called cerebral edema or your brain starts to swell. And remember, your brain is in an enclosed mm-hmm. um, skull that won't expand. And when your brain is irritated, it, it expands. And so an angry brain wants to swell, and the skull will not allow it to swell. And that's how people, that's how people are, you know, you know, have fatal injuries. So how long does it take that, that permeability to re-solidify and not allow potassium to go out and calcium to come in? You know, that's, that depends on the situation. Some, I mean, uh, in mild concussions, uh, people are usually better in 7 to 10 days or somewhere around there. And... 
at that time, um, a lot of times that is already uh, resolidified. But you know, the thing that a lot of things that we a lot of thing we think about now is the um, secondary impact syndrome, where you know some people go back to sports or go back to activities too quick before that membrane has you know re, re, rejoined or resolidified, however you want to say it, and you could have another injury that could make it even worse. Mm-hmm. So what you what you want to do is just allow that one concussion to totally resolve and get better from it and let the auto regulation start to um, you know perform normally again. So what about these these sub concussive hits? You know that's the one thing that when it comes to NFL players and and people that play contact sports, you know, we were always well, A, you know, we were always told just to shake things off like that. Right. And um, unless you were, you know, really discombobulated or knocked out, that's the only time you really sought any medical help. But the the hits where you feel a little bit punch drunk or you just got to shake the cobwebs out, you get right back out there, you were never diagnosed with a concussion. Right. Going back to that, even that chemical transfer happens in those instances as well? Um, I think that's debatable whether it happens. I mean, um, because usually a subconcussive hit doesn't give you any symptoms or significant yeah. symptoms. So I can't say that um, that is actually happening, but I think if you have not recovered from a previous concussion and it continues to happen, subconcussive hits, I think it will um, interfere with your auto regulation. Hmm. So it wouldn't be as just easy as like, well, I'll just eat more potassium and just no. say, you know. No, no. Because there is uh, there is the idea that your brain does a pretty good job of keeping things out, right? Yes. I mean, there yeah. is this blood-brain barrier thing that we have to that, – that your body sort of protects the brain right. from. So right. it's not as easy as like, well, if I'm losing potassium in my, in my neurons, I'll just feed myself more potassium. No. It's not that easy. No, it's right? not that easy. And is it just time? Is that the treatment? Like is, it's just – Give your body time to f- to fix it. Yeah, time and um, you know, and just monitoring symptoms and rehab. There's no medication that's um, that's been FDA approved to uh, to treat it. So it's just a matter of time and recovery. So for for all the parents out there that maybe especially have uh, you know young high schoolers or young kids, these what are the sort of the classic symptoms that you know maybe they weren't knocked out. Right. You know maybe they. They uh, came home from practice and everything is great. And they're like, yeah, it was a tough day at practice. And that's about it. But then later on that day, later on that night, they start feeling different and maybe having some symptoms. What are some sort of the classic concussion symptoms that parents should should think about and look out for and kids should be aware of? Some of the main things are um, headache, um, retrograde amnesia, not being able to remember what happened at that time confusion, um, photophobia, you know, lights bother you, phonophobia, sound bothers you, nausea, vomiting, uh, visual changes. There's a litany of things. But what I would tell parents is if you have a kid that has any of those symptoms, I would not hesitate to immediately call your doctor and have the kid, uh, have your child evaluated. Yeah. Because the worst thing you want to do is have a kid, a young kid playing a sport with a concussion and then they get these sub-concussion concussive hits or secondary impact, you know, and that could make their symptoms much worse. Yeah, it's um, it's just so um, it's so interesting, kind of where we've gone with the protocols and all this stuff, because right. it, it seems like 
um, you know, kids are more aware of concussions and parents obviously are more aware of concussions. And, and in some instances, you know, kids will have to sit out a week to 10 days after just a hard hit to where maybe they have a headache, right? you know, and maybe they, um, their balance is a little off. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sort of laugh at myself because there are many times, you know, in training camp, you get back to your room and you sort of have a, have a headache from the day. Right. And I'm like, well, is that dehydration or is that, was that a hard hit? You know, sometimes you feel a little bit queasy and you're like, well, is that, is that just because of, again, dehydration? Right. Is it something I ate at, at, uh, at dinner yeah, yeah. or, or whatever? You just don't know. And I, and I think that the hard thing is, is actually telling somebody that, Hey, I don't feel right. 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 You know? Yeah. That's the, that's the good thing about all of this information coming out now is that during your day, they just weren't probably being diagnosed. Now, you know, people are watching for concussions. We, we know symptoms and we know what um, the mechanism of injury looks like in certain instances. And so um, it's good to know that it, know these symptoms. And if the kid has it or your child has it or anyone has it, we need to report it. And is, is the weak layoff, is that just sort of standard practice? Because, you know, if, if somebody has a, a hard hit and maybe mm-hmm. more symptoms, they can last longer than that? Like, is, is a week always just sort of like the one thing you tell them? Or can they come back sooner than that? Well, it depends. I mean, um, it depends on their symptoms. I mean, if they, 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 you know, there's the return to play protocol. And so it just depends on where they are in that protocol. So if, if, if a person um, is hit and has a concussion and they come come see me and they're st- having and still having concussion symptoms, I will definitely keep them out. I would not tell them just to, you know, do nothing, like resume normal daily activities. Go to school, read, watch TV, talk to your parents, you know, do your homework, that kind of thing. But um, I think anything beyond that needs to go through a protocol of stages of returning based on their symptomatic improvement. Mm-hmm. Where, um, where are we at with, I guess you mentioned that there's, there's not nothing we can really take, right? you know? Um, and I remember some of the, the old protocol was go into a dark room, right? you know, don't look at a lot of light, but now I keep hearing that like actually the opposite of that, as long as you can tolerate it, light exercise is actually good for you. Right. And being active is actually good for you. So is that where we're at now with, if you're kind of symptom free and you can tolerate it, like you said, going back to normal life in that just, you can be active. You don't have to like hold yourself up and, and, uh, and be in a dark room. No, there's some, some literature out there that says that makes you worse. When you just don't do anything, just sedentary. Re- yeah, return return to basic, non-contact, non-physical, normal activity like the going back to school, the reading, the homework, and then you gradually increase like the different stages, like light activity, maybe walking or you know jogging for a few minutes and doing light things like that. Then move into a moderate amount of of um, activity, running, jogging, and then gradually getting back to uh, you know, practice and contact and then back to full activity. But I think remaining active um, without contact or without much exertion 
during the early concussion period is important. And the reason behind that is just moving your body increases blood flow, which then kind of increases the healing effects that your body naturally has. Is that kind of the, the yeah. thought process behind that? Yeah, and it keeps your brain functioning. If you just go in a room and shut the door, I mean, you know, light off and shut the door, you're not going to, you're probably going to make yourself worse. And how often, when you mention the the spinal fluid, mm-hmm. I'm going to guess that has a ton of nutrients that your body, your yes. brain needs, right? That has like the food and everything that it, yes. your, your brain needs. So yes. does extra, does activity increase that circulation of it as well? Um, or does it have its own system? It has its own system. It's, it's created um, within itself inside the ventricles of the brain. Um, and this, this fluid is constantly being um, um, remodeled. It's constantly being made and constantly being um, and, you know, removed from your body. So it's, a, it's an even balance in most people. So getting your elevating your heart rate is not necessarily going to pump more spinal fluid into your brain. No, 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 no it's not. It's and not. What? So what part? What system makes your spinal fluid? Like, is it your spine? I know that's kind of a stupid question because it's called spinal fluid, but like, yeah, there are um, small areas inside the ventricle, ventricular system. The ventricular system is a system in your brain that um, creates spinal fluid and circulates spinal fluid within your brain and your spinal fluid, and it allows it to leave out of your brain in your spinal cord and, and circulate around the brain. So it's the ventricular system that, that does there. They're called arachnoid granuli, okay. and they, they're they constantly creating um, uh, spinal fluid. So is there a way that we, through science, can manipulate that to make it work a little bit quicker or more optimal in those TBI situations? Um, not that I'm aware of there. You know, we're, we're trained as neurosurgeons that there are different medications you can take to try to slow it down. When people, you know, we see people who build too much spinal fluid or the spinal fluid is not circulating appropriately. Mm-hmm. And in those people, there are different ways where you can, um, different medications that you can take to try to slow down that production. But, um, you know, and then there are other ways. Some Sometimes it gets bad enough to where you have to shunt it, actually put a tube in your brain, and the tube drains all the way down into your belly. And it, mm. it's controlled by a valve. Mm. And it monitors and manages the amount of pressure inside your head. Yeah. That's, what's most, that's one of the most important things is the pressure in your head. Yeah. Intracranial pressure. So as we, as we kind of look at this thing in a, in a 360 way, we kind of discussed what a concussion is, you know, what happens in your brain, what we should do to sort of like help your body heal itself. But when it comes to prevention and you're, you want to go out and you want to play your sport, right. you want to do what you want to do. You know, you, ha- you have to head this soccer, the soccer ball because that's, part of the player. That's just the way you play the game. What are some of the ways that we can sort of prevent a concussion or these sub-concussive hits? I think um, just taking the NFL, for example, um, they made a lot of modifications to the game, which, which you could tell me all about, but they made a lot of modifications, the way people tackle, the way you're hitting people, People are recognizing concussions, the, the equipment you wear. There's a ton of different things. But the main thing is just just trying to play the game by the rules and not, um, not do things that are going to increase your risk 
of getting a concussion. I, in, it's, it's, I know in soccer a lot of head injuries are from people hitting the ball and two people hit their heads together or, you know, just the ball hitting your head. But, you know, it's just, it's just trying to play smart is the main thing, I would believe. Yeah. So I wanted to get your sort of knee-jerk reaction to this because this has been – on my mind, and it just from a mechanical standpoint doesn't make sense to me. So throughout my career, I saw a lot of technological advancements in helmet design. Right. You know, NFL's challenged all these big helmet manufacturers. We need to have better concussion type helmets, better protection for our players, which is great. You know, I wore this sort of, you know, now I can classify as an old school Rydell helmet. Um, and it fit me perfectly. It had these little air pockets. You could manipulate the air to make it a tighter fit. Um, I put a titanium face mask on that I purchased myself because I wanted I wanted the front of my face and the weight of my helmet to be as minimized as possible. Um, so my helmet was very light. Right. <clears throat> now, it would not pass the concussion protocol testing today. Right. I tried the concussion helmets. I think there were, you know, Rydell made them shut. Um this extreme or Xfinity or something. There's these like, you know, all these like bigger brands now and they're all so heavy. Right. And, and they, but they passed the concussion tests. And every time I wore them, um, the weight was off. It was very front heavy. Um, I felt like my head was on more of a pendulum. It was harder for my neck muscles and shoulder muscles to stop any sort of deceleration. And I just thought to myself, I, I actually feel like I'm in a worse situation wearing a heavier helmet. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to just get your thoughts on this idea from a mechanical standpoint. My my head is the tip of my the top of my body. Right. You know, why would I want to put something heavier on top of it? Wouldn't it be better to control a lighter helmet that is the shell is just as pr- protective? Right. But why a heavier helmet makes it safer? So not knowing much about helmets, but I do know a lot of the helmet research and development has come from woodpeckers, believe it or not. And mm-hmm. so um, I, would, I would think that it has something to do with the amount of uh, absorption of impact by the weight of the helmet. Now, I don't know, any, I don't know this specifically, but um, it seems like that has to be something to do with it. But to be honest, I just don't know enough about helmets to answer that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just, I, you know, in my mind, again, I'm not trained with anything. I just think that if if I'm going to minimize the whiplash effect, right, then I would want something light, you know, yeah, versus something that's heavy. And and I know a lot of on, on top of that, I know a lot of strength coaches are saying. You know, oh, I can't get these players. I can't get these these new age players to to do neck and shoulder exercises right. in the kind of the old school way we're doing it because they want to do all this CrossFit CrossFit stuff. They want to do all this functional training, but people are ne- neglecting just overall neck strength. Right. And I have to think that that's playing a part in some of these concussions as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I would definitely agree with you. Yeah. And I would say even probably for soccer players out there, I think, you know, it's not like they're a bunch of muscle-bound guys like football players. Right. But I would think that a, an increased focus on doing neck exercises probably is just going to help their situation. Anyway. Right. The more you can absorb a hit and, and try to decrease the amount of brain um, movement in your skull, I think that's, uh, that's the key. Yeah. 
So I, I would I do want to transition into um, this the world of the C, of CTE mm-hmm. um, that has become a huge topic. Uh, whether you're talking about football players, whether you're talking about any any one of these professional athletes that you know a has taken their life, um, has gone out to be violent criminals later after they're done playing, um, or anybody else that just you know, sort of has this this weird part of their life or end of their life, they want to look back and say, oh, upon autopsy, CTE. Right. What exactly is CTE? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and can it be always attributed to traumatic brain injuries? So the way I think CTE, the way I think of it is CTE is a neurodegenerative disorder um, that occurs from multiple injuries to the brain. And what it does is it's been found that the tau protein in your brain can start to accumulate in certain specific areas of the brain that can lead to these kind of uh, neural deficits that you're describing. So from the literature I've read from uh, Dr. McKee and Dr. Omalu, um, it seems as though CTE can be attributed to brain injury and multiple impacts to the brain. So just to, just to sort of counter that, in some of the research that I've seen online, they have found CTE in people as young as 18 years old. Right. And that leads me to believe that well, maybe some of this stuff is not as conclusive as they think it is. I but, agree. So, so where is the disparity, and where is the this this wide range of? Well, we have found it in young people, but we for sure know, and we're for sure certain that basically, you play football, you're going to have CTE. Like that, that somehow doesn't always add up to me. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I would say that it's only in football players. Um, you're well, seeing, a higher likelihood, I guess. Yeah, you know, I higher say. likelihood. You're seeing it in people who were physically abused. You're seeing it in soldiers, um, in military personnel. You're seeing it in other athletes and people who just have traumatic, repetitive traumatic brain injury is where it's being seen. Um, it's you know they're they've you know, they've made different stages of CTE, some which are asymptomatic, and these young people may not have very much um, tau protein distribution in their brain, but they exhibit the symptoms of it. And I was reading articles a couple of years ago about how um, um, Dr. McKee graded those into four different grades, different grades of CTE. One was um, a person who exhibited some abnormal symptoms of behavior and cognitive function. But then when they get imaging studies, it's negative. And then you go and get um, pathologic evaluation, and you do see one to two or very few areas of, um, of tau protein distribution all the way up until the last stage into where the tau is all over the brain and the person is, you know, very cognitively affected. So tau protein is something that we naturally make. Yes, and yeah. what is the purpose of the tau protein? It protects the membrane of your of your uh, neurons. So it's there as a defense mechanism 
for your neurons. Yes, it's, it helps the neurons remain healthy and keep the, like we talked about, the electrolyte balance. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what it does. So then upon injury, it, it sort of comes into the rescue, you know, let's say, let's say is, is, you know, basically patching up a sieve and that sometimes can just stay there? Well, it what it does is it naturally is a protein that that um, protects your neuron. When it's not functioning, it does not protect. When it doesn't function, when you when it's when it's when it's when you have in CT we're talking, when it's distributed in different parts of your brain, it's a, mostly around blood vessels and is not necessarily protecting the cell membrane, the neuron membrane, and that's where. You're starting to see electrolyte imbalances and the symptoms that we're describing. So why is it that we can only find these these tau protein markers postmortem? Um, they're I don't they don't they have not found any biomarkers where you can test it in blood or there's research in, on on spinal fluid and they're looking for it in blood uh, different biomarkers where you can test certain. Um, proteins or whatever in your blood or your spinal fluid to see if it's any abnormalities there. But you don't see it on imaging studies. You're not going to see tau protein on imaging studies. Most um, imaging studies are are, are going to be negative hmm. unless as you age, you, uh, as, it, as things progress, you get additional brain atrophy. You get abnormalities uh, for, other, for er- other areas of the brain, but you're not necessarily seeing tau protein on imaging. So it's a microscopic and a pathologic diagnosis, huh? And also symptomatic. So when the when somebody di- dies and mm. they're deceased, that somehow that tau protein then becomes solidified or visible in a way that you can see in an autopsy. So what they what you basically do is um, you you get the brain and you slice the brain in the slices. And you stain it. And then once you stain it, you can see certain colors or certain appearances that show where tau protein is distributed. And then through microscopic evaluation, you can determine that is, you know, abnormal tau protein. Oh, I got you. So it's a staining. So when I, whenever I see, you know, these the brains of these football players or whatever, it, it, they, you know, they have like a distinctive color or whatever. To yes. So that's not the towel itself. That's just reacting to the staining that they, that they use. Yes, they stain it. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's no, obviously there's no way they can do that in a living person. That's right. That's right. You can't do it in a living person. Well, I've done, I've done these uh, MRIs with a contrast or yeah. something like that, but then they're looking for something completely different when they do that. Yeah. But MRI with contrast, you're basically looking for lesions that are vascular, like uh, brain tumors and things like that. So then, when you're when you're doing a brain surgery for something else, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a tumor, you're not you're not going to open up that person's skull and just see a tau protein deposit somewhere. No, no, you're not. You're not. So we, um, you know, we when we go to surgery, 
we have the, the MRI and we use navigation system to find where we're going. So we usually have, there's a specific target you're going after and you're looking directly at that target. You're, you don't, in the brain surgery, you don't have the ability to kind of explore or look around. You go directly at what the problem is. Oh, gotcha. And try to, try to take it out or whatever you're trying to do. So if you're working on somebody, the top of somebody's brain mm-hmm. and they may have, Let's say they're an athlete that may have had concussions and maybe some repetitive stuff to the fore, the frontal lobe, or the back of their – you're not going to see that. I'm not going to see that. Because you're not even going to that area. No, no. Yeah. We try to make incisions and, and craniotomies, the, the removal of bone to get inside the brain, as small as possible. Yeah. And that's, um, you know, that's why people recover so quickly now from brain surgery well, compared to years ago when we didn't have all the things that we have now, like navigation system – and, you know, awake craniotomies, all that kind of thing to, uh, to try to help them recover quicker. Yeah. So where can we, I guess, talking about CTE, what can we do about it? You know, is, there, is it definitive that it's coming from just impacts or does lifestyle have anything to do with what some of these, these athletes are going through? Um, where you might be depositing extra tau protein, or or do we know for sure that it's the tau protein? I think I think it's pretty much a, a consensus that tau protein is what is causing causing CTE. I don't know of anything that you can necessarily do, but try to limit the amount of injury or impact to your brain and repetitive impact to try to prevent that. But I don't I don't know of um, much of anything else that you can do to prevent CTE. Yeah. There's still a lot of research going on. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to make this sound like every, every guy that has suffered from CTE as far as football players go had, had, uh, you know, maybe a, a compromised lifestyle, but, right. the, but the guys that, that I, that I knew personally, um, and I knew and guys that I, that have friends of friends, right. um, those guys didn't always live, a clean lifestyle, right. you know, right. and, and I just wonder how if you get done playing a game on a Sunday and let's say you suffered a concussion or a series of subconcussive hits right. and, and the best, your best course of action really should just be like, just go home and chill. Yeah. You know, these guys, you know, they're out drinking, doing drugs, yeah. you know, maybe they're on steroids. Maybe they're taking other things yeah. like and maybe I'm just fooling myself because I, I want to stick my head in the sand and, and not realize and not think that that could be my reality. But I kind of think that like that has something that's got to have something to do with it. It it could. But I, I, I can't I'm, I can't say that. I mean, I can say that if they're doing that, like you get a concussion or your 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 bell is wrong playing football and you're out the night drinking, you're definitely not doing yourself a favor. You need to get the the treatment you need, get evaluated, and just calm down for a while. Yeah, because mm-hmm. I, I would think that if we're talking about it in the grand scheme of things, I know there's a big buzzword in in medicine and wellness about inflammation. Yeah. You know, you know, a lot of disease is just really caused by an over-inflammatory response to to X Y Z variables. And I would like to think when it comes to the brain, if we're not giving our brains a chance to reduce that inflammation from, right. a, from a hit and we're only doing things that exacerbate it right well in that in that kind of yeah like, that, that's know. definitely going to infect you in some form or fashion 
Uh, it definitely will. Um, it goes back to that electrolyte imbalance in your brain. If you've been hit in the head and um, and that auto-regulation is not working appropriately mm-hmm. and you're out drinking and partying and smoking, your blood pressure goes up, your brain's going to become inflamed. You're, you're going to start having inflammation because you don't have the normal auto-regulation in your brain. So I'm sure um, a, a non-healthy life, lifestyle has something to do with it, but I can't, I don't specifically feel that I could say exactly what that is in relation to CTE. Mm-hmm. How much in, of, of the doctors and yourself and the profession itself are talking about how, let's just, let's say go with this idea that, or the, the fact that there's sort of a hormone and maybe hormone chemical mm-hmm. disruption that takes place with a concussion. Right. Um, if that can be modified, manipulated by adjusting your hormone levels and maybe looking at, is it the endocrine system that would be responsible for that? Like, yeah. is that is there dialogue that's happening between you and maybe like an endocrinologist or somebody else that says, okay, got this patient over here, concussion, they're all about out of balance. How can we help their, their, their body regulate itself and fix itself from a, maybe from a different angle? Yeah, I mean, um, if if I run into a person with with symptoms like that don't necessarily match a concussion, or I'm concerned about some endocrine imbalance, yeah, I do. I will call an endocrinologist to run all the tests with the you know thyroid, the pituitary gland, and all the different hormones in your body to try to see what the imbalance could be. But um, I would say, in most of the cases I see, is not a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And it's not a lot of um, discussion about hormone imbalance between, you know, like a, the neurosurgeon and the um, endocrinologist or other specialties. Yeah, yeah. Do you work on many football players? I'm the um, independent neurological consultant for the Vikings, so I see them for concussions, and and now I'm st- starting to do spine also. Yeah, I, I got to imagine the spinal injuries are probably outweighing the concussion. Yeah. In yeah. a way, mm-hmm. yeah. I, it's um, that that whole other world that you work in is um, is fascinating to me too because <laughs> I was unbeknownst to me, I had a back spasm against uh, I forget the team that we were playing, and it was it was a non contact deal. Mm-hmm. I, I just I don't know what I did. I we went back and watched the film. I was with the trainer. And he's like, "That's he's like, that's where you got hurt." Yeah. I'm like, "Yeah, I I don't know. I just took a step and my back locked up and I." You know, couldn't even like touch my toes and like everything. You know, it was it was horrible. They did an, an X ray and all this other stuff, and they're like, "Like you, they're like, have you ever hurt your lumbar, your lower back area?" I'm like, "Not really. I don't mm-hmm. think so." And they're like, "You've got like the lumbar of like an offensive lineman." Yeah. I'm like, I do. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I guess maybe that's somehow related to the back spasm I had, but like. You know, I have to imagine that you, you know, you're working with with uh, football players that you probably see stuff like that all the time. Yeah, I see it. I mean, I saw it ten times today. I mean, just people who, you know, someone brushing their teeth. They've been over to brush their teeth and they get a back spasm. They drop to the floor and the ambulance comes and gets them. So I mean, <laughs> you'd be surprised. I mean, I've had it happen to myself where I can remember a few years ago I was doing the exact thing. I was brushing my teeth. My back gave out. It was spasming. It, it hurt so so bad. I couldn't stand. I couldn't crawl. I had to lay on the floor and just have my my daughter come and stand on my back. And then I called 
a, a rep to get me a, um, a lumbar corset to wear because I had surgery in two, three hours. And so um, I know exactly what they're going through. I mean, uh, I saw several people today with that similar similar incident. Yeah. And you know how big of a, a wuss I felt? When no, believe me, you're not. You're not. <laughs> they're like... So that's your injury? I'm like, yeah, dude. I, and it was like, one of those things, like, I could barely, like, talk because I was like, oh, my gosh, it just hurt so bad. I couldn't put my socks on. I was sweating. Yeah. You know, yeah. the pain was immense. And they're like, yeah, okay, here's some muscle relaxers, and hopefully you're you're better tomorrow. And yeah. and that's all I could really do, like yeah. a hot pack and hot muscle pack, relaxer. ice, muscle relaxer, and maybe some steroid pills but um so what happens in those situations like what is your body why is your body freaking out like that your 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 muscles just start to spasm and tighten and it can be very painful and um it'll drop you to your knees and you just you just got to get get them under control and usually it's a muscle relaxer rest hot water ice and is it really like a shift within your your spine somehow some way like it just like gets knocked out of place and fires up? Not necessarily. I mean, it could just be a certain movement you make and a muscle doesn't like it and a muscle starts to spasm. Just a really tight, your muscle tenses up, kind of like a cramp in your leg. Yeah. And, except it's worse. And um, and and it can it can keep you from, from being able to stand straight and then that makes the pain worse. Yeah. So it's a... Um, Believe me, I, it's a. It can be. I see people that are in agony with that, and and trust me, the ERs around town are full of them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the ERs are full of people with acute back pain. I think it's the. It's either the second or third cause of doctor visits in this country. No kidding. Yeah, back pain. And is it really? You know, we've all we, we've all heard that your your core muscles and your the front part of your body is is responsible for keeping that spine in check like yeah. is that really just a simple answer we, we all just have to do more no, more no, core no, exercises it's a, little, it's a little more than that i mean because i'm sure as an athlete you did that right you were you had yeah, strong core muscles i probably muscle. could have done more core exercises yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. always at the end of the workout i'm like ah, i think i'm good yeah so it's um you know it's it's a very common and um I think just trying to stay healthy and and exercise, um, strengthen your core muscles and also your 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 posterior spinal muscles that allow you to stand straight. You know, doing exercises to strengthen those are the best things to do. But some people are just going to get spasms and get ba- acute on ba- acute back pain for no cause. Yeah. Um, you know, there's um, there was always a fear of mine as a player and you have to push away that fear. You know, we've all seen, you know, football players that get paralyzed. Um, you know, we're always taught proper tackling technique. You know, the paralysis thing and the spinal cord injuries were always, um, you're always sort of there, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you try not to let it affect your play and you want to go out and play reckless and, and all that stuff. But, where have we where has the science gotten with some of that stuff? We've seen some very remarkable stories where you know a, a player has a severed spinal cord. We're told that they can never walk again, right. and you know they get back on their feet. Maybe not a hundred percent, right? But it seems like some of these grave diagnoses aren't what they used to be. Yeah. So, so um, now there's a lot of research on uh, cooling and uh, cooling the body and calming the body down, calming the nervous system down, and also uh, increasing your blood pressure and 
keeping the the blood flow to the spinal cord elevated, mm. and also um, just trying to keep the person and making sure that the person. That, uh, one of the main things is the technique of when people are injured, you don't go pick them up. Right. You don't go pick them up. You don't go and lift them and get them off the ground. You use spine precautions, and then you get them to the appropriate place to get X-rays or MRIs, whatever you need. I think that was um, that's been a big thing that has been very helpful because I remember watching football as a kid, and a, a guy would get knocked out or his neck would bend a certain way, and another guy would come pick him up and and get him off the floor. His neck could be broken. Yeah, you know. So spine precautions, um, blood pressure management. Cooling the body down, those kind of things. And you're talking cooling the body down. I, I believe, um, I think Ryan Shazier for the for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I, I believe that was the the protocol they used on him. And thankfully, he was right there um, in Pittsburgh because I, right. because I think that they are kind of leading the way. They have one of the one of the better hospitals when it comes to spine right. research. But they kind of packed him with ice yeah. right away. Right, right. That calms down your nervous system, relaxes all the neurons, and just um, helps decrease swelling. Now, there's debate about whether giving um, steroids helps or not. There's some people that say it does, some that says it doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, The way I trained in Memphis, we did not give steroids for acute injuries. Um, We usually um, went to surgery and and tried to resolve the problem and get the pressure off the spinal cord. Usually what happens, it's a... It's, it's a broken bone or some herniated disc or something that's pressing on the spinal cord or bruises the spinal cord that's causing the problem. And so one of our techniques when I trained was to, you know, just try to go to surgery early. But there's a lot of debate about that also. So oh, really? If you ask 10 neurosurgeons what to do, you're going to get 11 answers <laughs> on how to treat that. So I always thought that the faster you go into surgery, the better, and that's not the case. Some people say um, rest, ice, let things calm down, let the swelling come down, then go to surgery. Some people say um, the problem needs to be decompressed and removed from the spine now, even though the spinal cord is, is swollen and inflamed. And believe me, when you do a surgery like that, the spinal canal is as tight as you can imagine. I mean, I've seen some bad spinal cord injuries where – you're going in to remove bone, and just trying to remove bone, you can injure the spinal cord. Hmm. So you have to. So there, there's a lot of different trains of thought on how to manage that. But the way I trained, we went to surgery. You know, and I've done that quite a bit here. When I um, covered a lot of trauma, you know, you see someone in a car accident, they have a, a burst fracture, a spine, a spine just you know one of the vertebrae just shatters, and bone goes in the spinal cord. I would go try to go from the ER right to the operating room and try to fix it. Wow. But and that's just my way of my yeah. my training. And then you're talking, which I've never heard, this increased blood pressure thing. Is that is that immediately or is that just post-surgery? or how did, what's uh, that, the, it, We do it in surgery, um, and we also do it in, uh, in the ICU, in the intensive care unit there in the intensive care. You want to keep the mean arterial blood pressure up, elevated. When, when the spine is under pressure or there's – Injury to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the typically when we're talking, so when we're talking, let's say uh, a quadriplegic situation, mm-hmm. what what cervical vertebrae are usually affected there? Um, 
I'd say probably um, the most common in the surgical in the cervical is probably C5, 6, or C6, 7. I have seen a lot at upper upper portion, but it's usually, um, from my experience, it's usually been the lower vertebrae, the the five, six, seven area. Yeah. You know? And then what about the people that are just from the waist down? Like where does it where is that affected? That's anywhere below C eight, C I mean C seven. Anywhere below C seven is your thoracic. So everything from your your cervical vertebrae number one to your cervical vertebrae number eight. And the nerves that come out are C one through thoracic one. They all go to your your upper extremity. Everything below Thoracic one goes from your neck down. Gotcha. So most thoracic injuries that I've seen in my career, I'd say were somewhere between um, in the lower thoracic and upper lumbar. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at like um, T9, 10, 11, 12, L1, L2. That's where the majority have been. Gotcha. I'd say right around the junction of your thoracic and lumbar because your thoracic spine curves in a concave in a, in a um, kyphotic posture and your lumbar curves in a lordotic posture. There are two different curves that meet. It's called a, um, a transition, a, a junctional point. And so when a person's in an accident, that is a weaker area. And mm. it's usually somewhere around there that yeah. they're injured when they're paralyzed. But it could happen anywhere. I've seen, I've seen it everywhere. I've seen it everywhere from a, the skull coming off the neck all the way to, you know, someone being the last vertebrae in the spine being paralyzed. So Wow. Wow, it happens. So, what do you, what can you give to these these patients? Because it's not only the front end protocol that I feel like is it sounds like it's helping these people kind of get back on their feet a little bit and mm-hmm. not be um, you know wheelchair bound and have total assistance all the time. What are they? What sort of things are you guys giving them outside of physical therapy? Is are there you know new new age nerve drugs that we can give people? Things that can sort of calm the inflammation down immediately and and create this these new connections. Well, that's where that's where they're getting into the uh, in the steroid debate. That's one one train of thought is a steroid. Um, you know, early steroids can help. That's one train of thought. Like I said, I didn't train that way. Um, but offhand, I don't know of any medication that's being given. I mean, there are medications to treat the symptoms. Sometimes you can have with spinal cord injury, you can have neuropathic pain, which is severe pain in your extremities. And people are taking uh, different medications like um, Elevil, Lyrica, and um, Neurontin. Those kind of medications can sometimes help. Yeah. And where are we at with, like, stem cells and implants and things of that nature? You know, there's a there's a lot of research. I think there's a lot going into the University of Minnesota regarding that. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not... Um, I haven't seen much of it lately, but there's there is research regarding stem cell transplant to induce um, cell regeneration or cell growth in the spinal cord. Yeah, yeah. and anything with when it comes to implants, like I, I maybe I'm making this up, but I thought somebody was working on some sort of uh, almost like a s- small circuitry that you can implant. Yeah, there's there's a there, that's every, they're they're researching that at all different places. I mean, you can find any kind of research in spinal cord like that. Implants, uh, stem cells, there's a ton of research going on in that area. Do you think we'll get to a point in the near future where that's that can become common practice where somebody suffers what would have been a you know paralysis for the rest of their lives and we can get these people back on their feet? Yeah, that's my, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that. That's, um, it's been a um, tremendous improvement just from the time I trained in residency to now. 
So you're seeing people who were having devastating spine injuries back then were just not recovering. They didn't have the they didn't have the the rehab. They didn't have the ICU techniques to take care of them and try to increase the you know the, the blood flow to keep the spinal cord healthy and perfused with blood. And um, so I think in the future this this is something that will improve. Yeah. Well, shoot, I hope so, man. Like I that's. To be able to go out there and and not that uh, nobody wants to go through an injury, but to go out there and perform in any sport and not have to think about that, I think yeah. would be you know such a blessing for a lot of these athletes. And um, you know, I just want to say, man, thank you. This was a this was an awesome conversation. Um, I learned a lot more than than I knew before I came in here and talking talking to you. So you just came out of surgery and you came over and, and just gave us some education. So thank you very much. All right, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, continued success, man. All right. I, I don't know what you're going to do next. I mean, you're probably going to, you know, put the, the neuroscience to the side and go do some other crazy thing. No, I'll tell you what I'm going to do is going to be the bass boat and fish. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Many, how many more years until you do that? I, I want to be done. I'm 53 right now. I want to be, I want to retire around 62, 63. So about 10 more years. 10 more years. I got to, I got to get this 12 year old out of high school and into college. And I think I'm going to hang it up. Are you going to stick around here and go fishing, or are you going to go back home? I'm, I'm going to go to Naples, Florida. I, I go there all the time, so that's where I'll— Everybody goes to Naples, yeah, man. It's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. So you're going to be a you're going to be a saltwater guy? I'm a freshwater guy. I mean, I go saltwater fishing, and I've caught a lot of fish out there, but I'm more of a, a largemouth bass and crappie yeah. type guy. So, But I've caught some—I go fishing down, saltwater fishing there all the time, and— I mean, the fish you catch out of that ocean is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. Called shark, goliath, grouper, you name it. You, you can catch it all out there. Dude, good. That's And you don't me. have to wait. You know, you just drop it down, they bite it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I can't handle the seasickness. Uh, you can take some medication. I know, but then I'm drowsy, and then I'm, like, not into it. I'm not, like, totally present. So yeah. that, that Dramamine stuff kind of affects me too much. You get some of those big fish, you're only in line, you'll forget about it. That, that's that's probably true. I've only I've only really done it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably not the best circumstance. I was at it was my bachelor party in San Diego. It was one of those like kind of community boats. Though this or the other other groups on there, and um, you know we were all hungover. So there's that. Yeah, yeah. We were hungover. Um, it was rocky seas. He anchored down because I don't know what we were fishing for, and we were just getting tossed around by the ocean. Right. Plus I'm hungover. Plus I'm trying to fight through. All you know, all my other buddies were like, "Oh, just have a beer. Yeah. You'll be fine with it." Yeah. Dude, I had like two beers, went to the bathroom, and came out and like, "I'm done." Yeah, like, yeah. I was rocking too much. It happens. I was out. The good thing about Naples in the Gulf is some days you go out there and it's like glass. The water is no, it's just calm. So you feel like you're on a lake. Yeah, you feel like you're on a lake. Not always, but I've been out there a lot where I could stand up on the bow of the boat and not worry. And we were talking, how far out are you going? So when I first started going, we go about 10 miles. But now I went about three months ago with a couple of buddies of mine, and the guy said that they've outfished that area. So we actually went almost 60 miles. What? I mean, uh, 60 miles in a boat. I, you know, if I'd known he was going that far, I probably wouldn't have done it. But we went 60 miles. In, how long does that take? Two it, hours? Yeah, it took about two hours to get there. Uh, two hours, then we fish for two, three hours, and then two hours to come back. Got to come back. But we caught some big fish, though. We caught some nice fish. It was worth it, I guess. Yeah, but I won't do it again. It's just too far. It's too far, man. Especially if a storm brews or something. And, yeah. You know, it's just too far. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
Keep doing your good work. All right. Um, I know that everybody around here appreciates having a guy like you around here uh, for all their injuries. And um, soon enough, man, you'll be, you know, kicking back in Naples. I'm ready. You got your fishing boat. Yep. You'll be catching some large mouth. Yep. No college tuition. And maybe, and hopefully, maybe one of your kids are, you know, they they pick up and live down there too, so they can yep. be close to you. So that'd, that'd be, be nice. That'd be nice too. Well. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Harris. I uh, really appreciate it. And thank you all to the listeners out there uh, for subscribing to this podcast. Uh, please tell your friends and family. Pass it along. Copy the link. Send it to them. And as always, I appreciate the feedback uh, that you guys all give me. i got to thank my, my sponsor, Douglas and Todd Bourbon. Uh, grain to glass, Minnesota-made, gold medal-winning bourbon uh, made right here in the great state of Minnesota. Go to douglasandtodd.com. Go to the upper right-hand corner. Find the store lo- locator to find the nearest liquor store near you. Enjoy yourself some Douglas and Todd, and uh, we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.